0: Welcome back to Culture Catchups. It's me, Lorraine, and I've got Kat here. Hey guys. Kat, we also have a special guest. Yeah, today
1: we have Dr. Stephen McEnoony, um, Total Seinfeld tragic, father of one, wife of one, and husband of one maybe. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, uh-huh. husband of one as well, wife of no one, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and 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 academic who's really interested in this topic of our Western culture, and, yeah, what, what do we really do with it in the 21st century? So,
0: Stephen, so awesome to have you here with us. Thank you, Kat. Welcome. He's got an awesome view too. You guys are missing out. Yeah, we're in,
1: we're in the office here in, um St. Leonard's. Looking over a cemetery is all very appropriate. <laughs> um, so, Stephen, can you tell us, just, like, give us, like, a brief overview of, like, your career and, like, your interests as a lecturer and teacher and... Stuff. Sure. Who uh, has some context, you know.
2: Yeah. Um, well, I after school, I went to the Australian National University and I did a Bachelor of Arts with Honours, okay. uh, majoring in English, and I wrote my Honours thesis on the American poet Robert Frost. And then I had a um, brief time overseas in the United States. I spent some time uh, in a monastery in Oklahoma, Uh, then I came back to Australia and I started my PhD at the University of Sydney and I wrote on three more poets, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, uh, David Jones, the Anglo-Welsh poet and the Australian poet Les Murray. And then at the completion of that, I started my teaching career, my academic teaching career at Camping College in Sydney, uh, where I um, have taught literature for 12 years and uh, now I'm at um, the Ramsey Center for Western Civilization as uh, executive officer, academic. Uh, so continuing my um, my passion for liberal education and for liberal arts, and uh, that's that's it.
0: Okay. That's it. Can I just ask, how do you guys know each other? How did we get here? Just short. Okay. Short little, like... Oh, well, I
2: taught Catherine. Oh, awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah. He taught me everything I know. <laughs> so if I say anything stupid, it's <laughs> Stephen's fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> no, so when I, was, um, yeah, I was at Campion uh, in the last three years, and that's when Stephen was there. So I think you took me in Catholic Imagination. um, yeah, all the court some, units in the first two years. Yeah, some yeah. various literature subjects. Yeah. Um, we talked about Homer um, <laughs> yeah. and Jerry Manley Hopkins a lot. Yeah. And so here we are today talking about Western culture. And yes. can we just kind of give an overview of like what, what do you mean by liberal education and, and mm. like this education in our civilization? And why is it important?
2: Yeah, okay. Well, people usually get confused by the term liberal.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, me. I'm doing
0: liberal neat. arts. Um, what is that? That was, my, that was my default question for everyone I asked like, yeah. why do you go to Campion? Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that was me. Guilty, sorry. Yeah. So
2: maybe we could talk about that for a bit to start with. Uh, so it's liberal not in the sense of the political party, obviously, uh, nor is it particularly associated with um, the philosophy, I suppose, the political philosophy known as liberalism. Mm. Although I guess because of the connection um, in the words that there might be some Uh, links uh, historically, especially in more recent centuries. Um, But uh, the reason it's called liberal education is from the the Latin word liber, which is free. And in the ancient world, um, it was considered the education of the free man as opposed to the slave. Uh, But the the meaning shifted um, slightly uh, to mean the education that itself frees a man, frees a person. Um, So I suppose frees them from uh, their own intellectual limitations, opens up um, avenues of of intellectual inquiry uh, to them. And uh, generally, I suppose, it's a general education, uh, historically in the humanities and the sciences, uh, there's, when people think of it nowadays, there tends to be a focus more on the humanities. Um, in the Middle Ages, the liberal arts were sort of classified in a more deliberate way than they were in the ancient world, so the medievals developed a notion. Although there was some debate about the number of the liberal arts, the, the you know, broad consensus had developed that there were seven, and that was an important number for the <laughs> um, uh, So seven liberal arts broken down into the trivium and the quadrivium uh, so the trivium, logic, grammar, and rhetoric, and then the quadrivium includes things like astronomy and music uh, and other um, sort of maths and science subjects. Um, so that's the that's basic history of it, very basic. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so when we talk about liberal education, uh, that's really what we're talking about, the, you know, the education that liberates... Um, so if you look at the trivium, the arts of logic, uh, grammar, and, and rhetoric, uh, well, logic frees you uh, to think logically, obviously. Uh, the grammar frees you in the sense that your thoughts can now receive particular articulation in a meaningful way. Um, and then rhetoric, which is the sort of master art of the trivium, enables you to incorporate logic and grammar in the art of persuading another person to your point of view, uh, and there was an interesting debate in the ancient world um, uh, about the role of rhetoric and, and where that fitted in in its orientation to truth. Um, so you know, particularly in the Dialogues of Socrates, you see him battling against this group called the Sophists, and the central disagreement was over the role of, of rhetoric, was it to um, persuade people towards the truth or to the truth? or was it simply to persuade them to whatever your opinion happened to be mm. uh, for the sake of exercising or exerting power over them? Mm. Um, so for Socrates, obviously, truth was primary of primary importance and um, that rhetoric needed to be used to bring people to the truth. So even if people disagreed about what the truth was in a particular case, mm. if they both believed there was such a thing as truth, then, um, then there was a foundation for... Know, dialectical debate and intellectual inquiry—you could actually have a conversation if you're both interested in arriving at the truth. Mm, yeah. Because if you you want, if your if your um, interlocutor um, points out or demonstrates to you that you're wrong in something, that's actually a good thing that mm. you've learned. Uh, and similarly, if you point out some a point where he or she is mistaken, then, then you know they've benefited from that as well. Uh, and Aristotle took this on in his art of rhetoric and so on. Anyway, yeah, um, right. <laughs> Thank
1: you so much. So is Donald Trump's Twitter account like the modern, sophistic?
2: Yeah, uh, I don't know. Enterprise. I don't follow. <laughs> I don't follow his his, um, his thought bubbles.
1: Yeah, it's, there's not much, not much dialogue there. No.
2: <laughs> no, no, no. Well, the the theologian Stanley Hauerwas said something about that recently. I think um, maybe as recently as this week uh, that. Trump wanted everyone to become part of his reality show. Wow. Um, I mean, the, the Trump phenomenon is very complex, mm-hmm. uh, very complex phenomenon. But, um, yeah, there, there is something strange about, uh, you know, the President of the United States getting up at 2 a.m. and tweeting something. And,
1: yeah. You know, is it real? Is it really him? That's my question. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, anyway. but um, And so this kind of exploration and initiation kind of into our culture that happens through a kind of formal education in the western civilization and the literature and history and philosophy of of our culture kind of speaks to me because I'm thinking a lot lately especially as I kind of give presentations for the culture project about kind of like like what is our culture and and as an, as a sixth generation australian i'm kind of like I'm so grateful for this opportunity that I had at Campion to delve into um, Homer and uh, the early um, literature dudes and the history dudes and Aristotle <laughs> and Socrates. T- and I obviously learned a lot. Um,
2: I didn't refer to any of them as
1: dudes. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's that, just cat. Yeah, that's, it's called development. <laughs> you know, they're postmodern now, but... Um, but I'm like, man, I, I don't know anything about my own culture like beyond what I've learned here and, and I feel like it makes a lot of sense that at this point in history we're kind of finding a lot of people who have strong culture ancestry back there at a home country but they've come to you know the Western, Western countries mm-hmm. and now we have these big homogenous masses of people that – are like essentially cultureless, mm. um, or at least divorced from this sense of like, oh yeah, I've got some Irish back there, or I've got yeah. some some Italian back there, but we don't really we don't really connect to that. Well, anymore. I think the more
2: recent your um, arrival in Australia is, the more likely you are to be connected to your roots. Yes. Yeah, I am a
0: first generation Australian. Yeah. My parents migrated here before I was born, mm. so I'm the only one in my family that was born here in Australia. Yeah. I'm the youngest of five, mm. so it's like I don't understand. It for me sometimes when I do our presentations in schools, it and even when I was in high school, it shocked me a lot when people didn't know much about their culture, their background, their their the traditions and um and my mom is so convicted in keeping the Filipino because I'm Filipino, um the Filipino culture alive here in Australia, and it's really beautiful when I witness other people's cultures and like their traditions. Um, and the things that they do whether it's like dancing or their food or the things that they talk about um but there's like a lack yeah there's like a lack of culture here and the culture here in Australia is just very like different and um for me personally I've seen like a lack of connection mm. amongst yeah. amongst young people, especially, you know, like, I don't know how many generations, but like multiple generations of Australians, like yeah. whether they're fifth, sixth, whatever. Um, so culture for me, it was kind of a culture shock for yeah. a la- for when I witnessed people having a lack of culture.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think what, what tends to happen in the, I mean, I hope this doesn't happen mm. um, to your children and grandchildren, but... What, does, what tends to happen in the experience in Australia and the United States in particular, uh, New Zealand and Canada, uh, is that, gr- you know, groups end up... Um, th- they might associate, very, you know, with a few things like food for a mm. while. But over time, uh, their sense of, um, I suppose, rootedness in a particular culture uh, disappears. And everyone ends up... You know, you mentioned homogeneity, you know, homogenous group. There's a strange kind of um, tension between some notion like multiculturalism and then this thing that binds everyone together. But in modern societies, it tends to be a uh, kind of money, capitalism, things yeah. like that, seeking to get ahead. And, and uh, you know, we're even referred to as taxpayers and consumers mm. and so on by politicians. Yeah. And uh, that becomes the, the thing that assimilates everyone, <laughs> You know, and when that happens, um, the deeper ties that bind, that people uh, formerly took for granted, um, you know, living in a village where your ancestors had been for as long as anyone could remember for hundreds of years in most cases, um, and where you expected your children to be, uh, that gave people very tangible connections with their neighbours and uh, the sense of, well, we have to get along, and there's this common purpose. Mm. And usually, in you know traditional cultures, there was a common religion mm. that tied people together. Um, and those things, those ties, are necessarily weakened in the project of modernity. You know, in modern states like Australia and and the United States, and some people find that very liberating. You know, um, because you know obviously there are um, there's a a kind of claustrophobic um, aspect to living in older world style communities, um, and and a lot of people who come to the new world, who come to Australia, and I mean, you know, Australia, the United States, and places like that, they find it liberating to be in a in a sense free to now pursue um, their interests and to, to pursue their opportunities to make money and to get ahead. Yeah. Um, and so that 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 isn't necessarily um, a bad thing that they find that attractive, uh, but it, it but then inevitably, um, second and third generation groups end up looking back and thinking, oh, what have we lost? You know, what have we lost? And um, everyone now, most people now, as their children grow up, the family gets fragmented. The children end up in one part of the world, the parents in another. Children in all sorts of different states and. Um, uh, that's a very modern thing, you know. Mm. It was once you would have known, your siblings yeah. would have been very near you mm-hmm. for most of your life and your parents and, um, and in, in um, older societies, everyone living under the one roof mm. for most of the time. Yeah. So it's yeah. a very different thing. And, um, <clears throat> yeah. yeah. So this is all connected to this question of culture. Yeah, and so... It's uh, connected to cult and into, you know, worship and agriculture. Yeah. Um, so rootedness in the soil and Cultures. all these kinds of things, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I'm um, just thinking about being called a customer the other day at the airport. Yeah, it's like hello, customers, and I was mm. like, I want to be
2: person, yeah, something other than that. But yeah, so citizen was <laughs> citizen preceded that. True, in, really. Yeah, citizen uh, sort of, I guess that notion comes out of the revolutionary mm. age in yeah. the United
1: Comrade. States and in France.
2: <laughs> well, comrades are later one with with communism, but but they're all they're all in a in a sense modern terms mm. uh, and. Um, I don't know I mean what did people refer to each other as in the in the pre-modern world probably not citizen brother mother brother yeah it's it's these more familial ties uh, and um
0: oh that's true it's that's, like your Philippi- like Filipino culture oh, yeah right. it's Tito, Tito. yeah we call each like in, in our culture even if you're not related to them you give them that family title yeah. so like saying uncle something un- auntie something even if you're not related to them yeah um, mm. yeah it's like that familiar bond yeah I love um, that yeah we still do that here yes. yeah um, Yeah. and so then I guess yeah well what what can
1: we do in the in the 21st century or in the, even in the 20th century where are these examples of this kind of kind of formal education in our culture being successful in doing something of restoration mm. or something of yeah. a revolution. Camping, no. <laughs> yeah.
0: Besides camping.
2: Well, one of the um, – so this is a question that was people were starting to think um, or to focus on in the United States, uh, especially in the period between the First and Second World War. Um, you know, the United States had a, a big influx of – immigrants um both between the wars and and then even more so after the after the second world war but um uh, you know from europe especially from northern europe over the over the decades um in the 19th and early 20th century from places like germany and and um you know ireland and um and then uh, you know from southern european countries like italy later on um but uh educators started to look at this and think, well, what, what's tying all of this together, given, you know, tenets in um, the American civic religion like freedom of religion, in American civic life like freedom of religion. Um, so there's not really a common religion. I mean, Christianity was the dominant religion, but obviously in America it was broken up into a lot, lots of different groups. So what held this whole thing together Uh and in education, people started to think, well, what should everyone know? What is it that every? what's the sort of common core of knowledge? They even use this term. Some people at the University of Chicago and at Columbia College in New York, and they're thinking, well, what should everyone know? And out of that developed what became known as the Great Books Movement, which was championed by people like Mortimer Adler um, and, uh, and others at, at Columbia like Mark Van Doren, And it was this sense, well, there's... um, We can all agree that, irrespective of our differences, that these are basically the great authors in our Western tradition. Um, And, uh, you know, going back to Homer and then right through to, you know, the early 20th century, which is more or less where the first great books movement cut off. Um, And... We think that, you know, if you're coming up to college, these are the things that everyone should read. And, and so there was this great movement to try and get, uh, to promote this idea in universities and also among the general public that, you know, this is a set of great books. Um, this is what everyone should know about. Uh, and part of that, as I've said, was to overcome this, this idea that there you know, that, that what binds people in the United States is rather intangible. Um, there's not a sense of a kind of common ethnic identity. There's not a sense of a common religious identity. So what is it? Um, so they did that, and then people started to experiment with different types of great books programs and to point out deficiencies and, uh, with it and whatever else. Um, and there was a very interesting guy, um, John Senior, who had actually studied at Columbia in the Great Books movement under Mark Van Doren, who was his mentor and great teacher. And senior ended up going off to Wyoming and spent some time at the University of Wyoming. And then he ended up um, in a place I don't imagine he ever expected to end up when he was a student in New York. He ended up at the University of Kansas. And um, he was thinking about joining a new um, Great Books College at that point, um, uh, Called Thomas Aquinas College. And then at the you know, the last moment he decided he'd stay at the University of Kansas, and he and his colleagues received a grant, and they started this, um, this integrated humanities program. Uh, but they didn't teach it in the way that the great books um, were being taught at, at great books colleges. They simply um, got the students to read the text and then to come and listen to the three professors themselves talk about the, the great authors. A couple of sessions a week for two hours each, and the three lecturers would just sit there and have a conversation um, about Homer or Plato or, or um, uh, Don Don Quixote or wh- whatever the topic was. And uh, the students would memorise poetry, and <clears throat> and uh, it just it it just took off. It became hugely successful, and um, so that was very interesting because. Um, They thought that the great books were a good foundation, but um, the great books tended to neglect, especially lyric poetry, and and so the professors thought, well, how can we integrate poetry, lyric poetry, into this, and what's the purpose of reading and studying poetry? And then they they stepped back and thought, well, actually, before anyone should study it, people should just love it. And to love it, you need to um, listen to it and uh, memorise it and make it part of who you are. And uh, then you have a kind of knowledge of the poem, which is pre-analytical. Uh, and um, when you love something, then you want to know more about it. Um, and uh, so this was this, was this idea. The they, um, motto was, in translation, was let them be born in wonder. And so they, the, the students went stargazing. And um, it was really senior's aim in particular, but all of the professors, John Senior, um, Dennis Quinn and Frank Nellick, was to... Um, put the students in touch back in touch with reality with tangible reality um,
1: what what is that yeah, yeah i like
2: well you can I'm knocking on a desk here and because the desk is really here isn't it
1: yeah. yeah and
2: I how do I know it's really here well I'm touching, touching it, it. Um, I've seen
1: pictures of tables before
2: yeah well there you are <laughs>
1: um,
2: so uh, you touch you touch it I mean Frank Nellick, um, I'm getting this from a book about John Senior by one of his students, um, um, Francois Bethel, Father Bethel, who was a monk, and um, and in that uh, he describes uh, Frank Nellick quoting um, Dr. Johnson and, and uh, someone said to Dr. Johnson, you know, how do you know the chair is really there? And Dr. Johnson kicked it and it fell over and he said, you see it's there. And uh, so like <laughs> apparently did this in one of their classes and he actually kicked it. And of course, so, you know, in other words, this is, it's grounded in the philosophy of realism, you know, and there's a sort of tautology here, which is important though, you know, the real is really real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, your senses, although you can be, they can be mistaken about certain things, uh, you know, if you put a stick in water, it looks bent perhaps, um, so, well, you might say they're mistaken, but how do you know they're, they're mistaken by other sensory data? Because you take the stick out of the water. Um, so you can rely on your senses. You know, this is, um, this is in Aristotle. Um, it's, it's, it's common sense, actually. Uh, and kind of revolutionary at this point. Yeah. Well, it is revolutionary at this point, um, I think. So and, revolutionary uh, so, at this point. So this is a philosophy of realism, you know, which is um, grounded in Aristotle, really, and
1: and then maybe you'll, like, write a poem about it or memorise one about it, and then you'll, like, really understand <laughs> well, it.
2: Well, this this is a thing, uh, let's say you've got a, a poem about the stars. Yep. Um, well, that will that will get to you in some way, but uh, if you've never looked at the stars, it probably won't have the same appeal. But if it's a good poem, it'll give you a kind of co-natural knowledge of what it is to look at the mm. stars and will make you want to go and look at the stars. Mm. So, that it, you know, poetry always takes you back to the real, takes you back to reality. Um yeah. And uh, so this, was, this is what they, they sort of grounded their teaching in. And, and uh, the students arrived often being, I suppose, philosophically sceptical or, or sceptics um, and uh, thinking that, you know, you couldn't know the truth and, um, and so on, that the truth was relative and, and whatever mm-hmm. else. And the, the professors thought, well, let's, let's test this. So they interviewed the students and found most of them were Sort of uh, relativists. Mm. This was in the late sixties, early seventies, and um, and they thought, well, you know, let's um, let's see what what happens by the end of the program. And by the end of it, you know, the students were philosophical realists, um, and uh, they loved um, poetry. They loved literature. They loved history, and uh, they loved philosophy. And um, uh, but they loved life. Uh, you know, they they saw that it was good. And uh, it was very transformative. And, and so the students really were liberated. They found it liberating. And the, 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 there was a certain joy that accompanied the teaching and the learning. And the activities the students did together, they, at this Students' Initiative, they had a spring waltz, they had spring fairs. Um, and um, they went stargazing. And then um, the professors encouraged later groups, in addition to or instead of going stargazing, to go and visit elderly, and to Mm. just listen to them talking about their past and about what it was like to grow up wherever, you know, in rural Kansas or wherever they had grown up, and just to talk about their lives. Um, So, again, contact with reality, you know. um, So, the books are, in a way, a starting point, but not an end point. Mm. Um, And uh, so, it was a very revolutionary program in a a way, And, and the founders of the Great Books movements had never really envisaged anything like this. Uh, although one of them, Mortimer Adler, went to this program and, and gave a talk and he was really impressed by what was going on there at the University of Kansas. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's a fascinating moment it's amazing. in American um, intellectual life, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's so inspiring. I've, I, I read about half of The Death of um, Christian Culture by mm. John Senior and was just, like, struck by the real, yeah, the real joy in life yeah. that his, even his language conveys. yeah. Uh, even when he's talking about really sad things. Yeah, (laughs) that's
2: right. Well, they talked about the tears of things. Mm. Um, And, um, you know, if they're reading the Aeneid or or something like that, the the reality does have this quality of a kind of melancholy. uh, You know, there's a sense of um, sadness that we, you know, we can't be satisfied with with, um, uh, material things. We, uh, you know, in other words, the human spirit yearns for something, for something more, and and that gives rise to a kind of um, sense of sadness, the inadequacy, I suppose, of our experience in a way. So, um, yeah, there, there's a certain sadness to, to life as well as joy, and the, these things always go together—a kind of bright sorrow or something. It's a it's a hard thing to describe, but but even that has this uh, it has this um, joy attached mm. to it. You know, uh, you know, you know, in, in a happy moment that it can't last well that that awareness is a kind of wisdom too um because you know that uh sort of temporal material experiences can't ultimately sort of satisfy you so that gives rise to a certain sadness but then it propels you to sort of quest for something greater uh so that was um yeah so that was part of it so Senior he was just, in a way he was um you know he was, he was a realist as I've said but there was this quite melancholy I think about him too, what I've mm. read and I've met a number of his students. Wow. Uh, yeah, a number of his stu- former students. Yeah, uh, so yeah. Yeah, so it's
0: amazing. If we had to wrap this up, because I feel like I've learned so much. Um, I'm thinking the
1: quest, for the quest time more yes. and how exciting. That next episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Matthew Tan about Stranger Things yeah. and fighting evil. So, thank you so much for your welcome. time, Stephen. I hope that we can add some links and stuff for people to do some further reading. Yeah, in sure. The there are some good podcast. books on this, yeah,
2: um, which people could could look at. Um, yeah. There's a new biography of John Senior by, as I said, um, Father Francois Bethell, awesome. and um, and there's another great book by James Taylor called Poetic Knowledge: The Recovery of Education. Yeah, there's a lot more to yeah. say. People are interested. But a lot of, there's a lot online, a lot of articles.
1: Yeah, and so this is what you're doing now in your project with the Ramsey Foundation. This is what Campion College is trying to do. And
2: Yeah, well, you know, we've got this mission to promote <coughs> Western civilization and um, uh, to reinvigorate yeah. education.
1: It's going to happen. It will it's happen. It's going to happen. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much
0: for your time. Thank you.